This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special 200th episode of the podcast is my co-host, the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. How did that happen? We got to 200 episodes in like, I don't know, a blink of an eye. But you know, the last 10 months has been a little bit crazy, so everything seems like it's uh, you know, just gone by and super fast. But amazing, here we are at our 200th episode of the Proceedings Podcast. We think back to the early days where it was you, me, and our good friend Dave Adams, Captain Dave Adams, and we were just like, let's just have a conversation. And we were sitting in Dave's office, now Bill Bray's office, and just set up a rudimentary rig and it kind of sounded that way and a lot of fizz in the in the mics and stuff. And we just started to discuss issues du jour. And, and so we had right. some pushback in those days. <laughs> we did. Uh, particularly our good friend Fred Rainbow did not love uh, what we were doing because it was sort of like an editorial opinion commentary podcast where we're, as members of the Naval Institute staff, kind of opining on the issues of the day, which is, that was a good call. I mean, Fred's barometer is what served him for all those years in terms of shepherding the independent forum. And I think he was right. So Dave left the organization and then you actually came to me and like, let's, let's keep this thing going. Yeah. And let's get proceedings authors on the show. And so that became you know, sort of the model for us, right, is that um, a young person, old person, you know, active duty, uh, enlisted officer, whatever, of whatever rank, uh, write something for proceedings, we publish it, we think it's, you know, maybe particularly newsworthy, or the author is somebody who would, uh, you know, like to be on the show. And we just started interviewing people on the, about their proceedings article, and it just became a conversation about what they'd written for proceedings. And we ended up with some amazing conversations based on that. And also, like the pages of proceedings, we like to introduce, let's call it junior thought leaders. And so I, I know uh, J.O. Who, who impressed both of us. Uh, she was actually Lieutenant J.G. at the time. She's now a lieutenant. But Andrea Howard uh, was on episode 26 talking about tactical nukes and the offsets. So let's listen to her commenting on that. Traditionally, we speak of offsets in regard to three different stages. There was a first offset, a second offset, and a third offset. And nuclear weapons have been very much so involved in each of these three stages. So in the first, which was a a result of the end of the Second World War, uh, nuclear weapons provided the U.S. and President Eisenhower's NULIC strategy with more quotable, as, as we quote, kind of bang for the buck. So you could 
in turn then withdraw some conventional forces, but still provide a strategic nuclear umbrella for allies um, with these tactical nuclear weapons platforms. The, the intention was to deter Russia from achieving a battlefield objective of using its massive red army to then go into Europe. So that was the first offset, right? The development of these bang for the buck weapons. Well, then for the second offset, uh, some of our potential adversaries started catching up. So in the 70s and 80s, Russia started developing its own tactical nuclear weapons platform. Um, but the U.S. then countered by, focus more, by focusing more on developing conventional precision strike weapons, so with laser targeting or GPS. And then the first Gulf War in the 1990s was an opportunity for the U.S. to showcase those platforms. And compiled with the collapse of the USSR, the U.S. then, because it had this conventional advantage, was able really in the second offset to really harp on those conventional platforms and then uh, sort of get rid of some of these older tactical nuclear weapons platforms. And as a goodwill gesture with the collapse of the USSR, we saw the presidential nuclear initiatives um, with George H.W. Bush, and he fulfilled his part of the U.S. obligation by getting rid of some of these ground launch, short-range tactical nuclear weapons. And this is when we first saw the removal of tactical nuclear weapons from Navy ships and attacks on the Marines. So that leads us back to today, where we have, again, the rise of these potential new adversaries. And so the third offset is us focusing on integrating more autonomous systems, machine learning technologies into weapons platforms. And so it's of note, there's kind of this really unique opportunity then to potentially develop tactical nuclear weapons because they, they fall beneath the threshold for the STAR treaties, and they're not fully governed by the, the range constraints of the International, uh, I'm sorry, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. And so with that in mind, um, you have the first offset of the bang for the buck, the second offset of rising conventional capabilities for the U.S., and now the third offset of new technologies, and with that, the potential to make smarter, more effective tactical nuclear weapons. Yeah, so Lieutenant Andrea Howard, super impressive young J.O., uh, graduate from the Naval Academy, was a Marshall Scholar in England, wrote that paper that became a proceedings article that was the, the conversation we just had with her. Um, and now, and then she became one of the first 100 female submarine officers in the U.S. Navy. She's finishing her tour on, on board the USS Ohio, SSGN, out in uh, the Seattle area. And she'll, she is on the ballot to be one of the members of the editorial board for the Naval Institute next year. Uh, that would be custom made. Um, so here's to voting for her to be on the editorial board. What a gift that would be to the Naval Institute. Just incredibly impressive, J.O. The future is bright. And it also demonstrates how if you had some concerns about female integration in the submarine force, you were absolutely off base. Um, <laughs> so the other thing we've been able to do with the podcast is our colleague, uh, retired Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury, has been the co-host in a number of episodes. And, and he is, Pete Daly, our CEO, brought him aboard to be our ambassador to the enlisted uh, side of the house. And he's done that in spades. And and so here's a good example. It was episode 72. We're talking to Command Master Chief Bill Houlihan about what he wants to see in his chief's mess. I believe our chief petty officers are as smart and as in tune with their ratings as we've ever been. I do not doubt that a chief petty officer is a technical expert, but when we talk about personal power, and we are talking about a chief petty officer's ability, innate ability, to recognize a sailor who is struggling, that right there, I believe that is where we are lacking. Okay, And I don't even view it as a character issue. I don't think that because a chief petty officer 
simply doesn't see something, meaning doesn't recognize a problem, you know, in, in a human problem. Um, I, I don't feel that that's a character problem if they choose to ignore those problems. If they know about an issue that a sailor is facing and a chief petty officer chooses to ignore it, that's a different issue. That's a character issue. But the personal power and the erosion of personal power, to me, comes from a chief who perhaps hasn't been trained to look for those issues, hasn't been trained to the value that, uh, that we must instill in our new chiefs. We have got to instill in them that helping sailors succeed, measuring our success through the success of the sailors we lead has got to be a huge priority. Yeah, fantastic insights from a command master chief there. And kudos to uh, Paul Kingsbury, who was on our editorial board, was a prize-winning proceedings author himself, and then joined the Naval Institute team. And as you said, has been sort of our ambassador to the enlisted ranks. And for our listeners, one of the things that we have um, we've chimed in on a lot is that we want more and more enlisted authors and we're, we're creating more enlisted authors in proceedings. And the, the number has grown from a handful, maybe in 2015 to 25 or 30, uh, enlisted authors every year over the last two years. So that is just great news. And then uh, another theme that has been, uh, in, in the podcast a lot has been naval history. And we've interviewed people who have been history makers, and we've also interviewed some historians. The first one is a guy named Don Walsh, Captain Don Walsh, who's one of my personal heroes. Uh, Don is the uh, the guy who started the Oceans column for proceedings over 20 years ago, and he wrote that column, which is every other month. Uh, and he started off because he was a submarine officer and uh, also an oceanographer, PhD, very famous oceanographer. But Don said, hey, you know, naval officers, people in the naval profession need to know more about the environment in which they're operating, not just sail on top of it, but understand what's happening in the deep ocean underneath them. He also famously was one of the first two human beings to go to the bottom of the Marianas Trench in January 1960. So this clip was us talking to him about the Trieste expedition and how he got involved with that. And so this is from episode 35, where, like Bill said, Don candidly admits his motivation for volunteering for this, uh, this job. So one of the things I did was set up briefings for the Commodore, various people in the area that wanted to come in and talk with him, everything from, say, from a shoe salesman in San Diego who said he knew how to solve the Soviet submarine menace, and I talked to him for a while, so if we you know, meet the Commodore, tell me what's your advice. He says, very simple, you just boil the ocean. I thought, well, that's good. said, you're a great American. <laughs> we'll, we'll get back to you. But one day, this guy comes into my office physically on my on the ship, so I knew he had the ID and all that, and he was the chief scientist of the Trieste Project. It had just arrived in San Diego, and he said, you know, it's a submarine of sorts, and we'd like to brief the Commodore. And I said, fine, and I went down and saw him, and he said, good. Then invite him for lunch, and you come too. You might find it interesting, so... I sat at lunch, and uh, our, our chief scientist, Dr. Andy Recknitzer, marine biologist, PhD from Scripps, who was working with the Navy League, uh, Navy Labs, a civil service, came and he had this big tall guy with him, and that was Jacques Picard. So we had the lunch. At the end, the Commodore um, said, well, uh, it's all very interesting, Dr. Recknitzer. How can we be helpful? And Andy was primed for that one. He said, well, I need a, uh, some submarine people are the best job description we could find in the Navy would be submarine qualified people 
uh, to be bathyscaphe operators. And we'd like to have a staff of about two officers and three to five enlisted to uh, operate and maintain this bathyscaphe, this revolutionary. There were only two of them in the world at that time. French Navy had one and U.S. Navy had the Trieste. We at the laboratory will decide on what programs to do, what, what missions we'd undertake. But the actual operating and maintaining of the Trieste should be with this Navy team. So uh, I thought, well, hell, that's, that's one way to get out of this office duty on the submarine tender. And I, I was directed to send out a, a, a message to all the uh, subs in EastPAC. That's the ones that were not deployed. And I figured that was about 22, including shipyard and all that. And so at the end, that is the number of qualified lieutenants that would fit what we're looking for would be something in the order of 40 or 50. So out goes the radio message, silence, nobody volunteered. Commodore had, had promised two, two officers. So I went to see, see the chief staff officer, and I said, you know, Captain, I, we, you know, we're going to embarrass the Commodore. So I did my best Brer Rabbit act, and I said, at least I can volunteer. As much as I love being on this staff and moving papers around and meeting important admirals and such, uh, I, I think I, I ought to do it so we don't embarrass the Commodore. And uh, he, he uh, looked at me like I was a, a truly great American hero. And he said, you know, that solves like part of the problem. Can you find somebody else? And he said, as a matter of fact, I do guy that was in my war group, a classmate of mine at the academy, Larry Shoemaker, would be an ideal uh, assistant officer in charge. I've got him by 20 numbers, so there's no worry about seniority or anything like that. And, and having anybody by, by 20 numbers was remarkable because I was so far down in my class standing. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I get orders from Bupers, and I'm ordered to the Navy, uh, Navy lab in San Diego as officer in charge of the Trias, my first command. That's one of the last things we did before the world shut down over at the Navy Yard. We got to see Don at the, the bathysphere. What what anniversary was that that we were celebrating? The 60th. The 60th anniversary. And, and so it seems like that was 10 years ago now, but uh, it was just this time, or even yeah. less than a year ago. Right, uh, January 2020. Yeah, but what a cool guy. I mean, he's still spry and, and just, uh, you know, funny. And, and as you mentioned, we've had principals, history makers, but we've also had historians. Uh, one of the best is uh, Vince O'Hara, who writes a lot for Naval History Magazine, has been the Naval History Author of the Year a couple of times. And uh, we've had the, the former editor-in-chief of Naval History, Richard Latour, has been a co-host as has uh, the current editor-in-chief, Eric Mills, and that was a, a job that changed out this year in 2020. Uh, but this was an interview with uh, Vince O'Hara writing about how uh, D-Day could have happened in 1943 instead of 44, but why it didn't. The reason why D-Day didn't happen in 1943, even though it was the original plans of the U.S. Army and General George Marshall, who was very anxious to meet the German Army head-to-head, on the plains of Northern Europe, um, didn't happen because basically the British didn't think it would be successful in 1943, and perhaps even in 1944. When these plans were first envisioned, and they were first agreed to, the British would have supplied not only the base of operations, but the vast majority of the troops and the naval assets involved in pulling the invasions off. So it wasn't until later on in the war when the 
the predominance of American material and men gave the U.S. the greater voice that, that the operation actually happened. So that's kind of an amazing idea that D-Day could have happened a year before it did happen. And I'll also mention that that episode of the podcast is one of our most popular in terms of number of listens. Vince has been on the show, uh, I think, three times. Uh, he's really fun to listen to, and he, he does applied history probably better than anybody, because I'm not a historian. But I love listening to Vince relate history, whether it's Leyte Gulf or Midway or D-Day. Good stuff. Another guy in the history category that we spoke to who is very important in our lives in terms of our J.O. lives is former Secretary of the Navy under President Reagan, John Lehman, who was very much uh, the lead dog when he had the job as SecNav. In fact, I, I doubt anybody could remember who the CNOs were <laughs> during those years. Uh, so he was all about the 600-ship Navy and brown shoes for aviators and, you know, just a, a really sort of type A guy. So it was, it was a lot of fun for both of us to have him on the show. So let's listen to Secretary Lehman talking about why we need a strategy. Unfortunately, we don't have the F-14 capability and we don't have the Phoenix missile capability, uh, but, uh, but we can compensate for that if we get back in the game with a strategy. And I think we're we are, for first time in a long time, we have a, uh, a CNO and a Secretary of the Navy who think strategically and who are now uh, involved in reestablishing a clear, coherent strategy to use the resources we have. Now, obviously, we had 594 ships at the end of the Reagan era. Uh, today we we have I think today it's 286 ships, but who's counting? And how many uh, aircraft carriers did we have? Remind the audience. Like 15, 15 aircraft carriers operational. Today we have nine. So it limits where we can go, and 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 unfortunately that's where uh, where some of the reforms of the post Reagan era uh, have really created problems in that. It is the theater commanders that have the power to say where the ships go, and uh, many of them are still acting as if we have a 600-ship Navy. And so that's been a, a major source of why we've been having such problems, and they uh, haven't had time to train the ships to terribly mix a metaphor. We're running our ships into the ground by back-to-back deployments. They don't get enough maintenance. They're deploying without fully up combat capability, and they're starting to drive a lot of the experienced uh, ratings and officers out of the Navy because of the time they're having to spend deployed. And even though major steps are being taken by the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Navy, to do more imaginative uh, deployment cycles instead of the, the, you know requiring these carriers to stay out there nine months come back and uh, take too little time to work to rebuild the crew and work up and uh, they have to go back out with the less than ready capability they are now they recognize that and there there was a period I think a few months ago when there were no no US carriers deployed well that was the right thing to do obviously it hurts our ability to deter but you can't have it both ways you cannot 
The Navy cannot continue to say we can do more with less. We can do less with the less. Yeah, what a pleasure to talk to John Lehman. I mean, you and I, as you said, we were both midshipmen and then JOs when Lehman was the Secretary of the Navy, probably the most powerful Secretary of the Navy in my life. And I can remember 600-ship Navy. He was forward. He was out on carriers up in Vestafjord. He uh, was one of the architects of the maritime strategy of the 1980s. You know, just a, a very powerful and, and cool guy, right? Fun to talk to. Oh, yeah, great guy down to earth with us. And um, I, I want to let our listeners know that we've just launched, uh, it's coming in the January issue, the American Sea Power Project, which is an effort on the part of the United States Naval Institute to exercise our thought leadership and get people to be writing and thinking about strategy. And Lehman has signed on to be one of the authors in that series of articles in 2021 and 2022. So we're excited to have him on board for that effort too. The next series of topics was when we uh, we had a, a number of episodes that were focused around um, something happening in current events, where there's something happening in the world, something happening in the Navy, the sea services uh, that says to us, hey, we've got to talk about this. We've got to have uh, people writing about it. We, we get uh, articles about the topic and, and then we, you know, we bubble it up on the podcast. And uh, in 2020, in uh, the spring and, and summer of 2020, that was very much diversity, inclusion, racial justice following the, the George Floyd death. And so we had a number of service members writing about that topic. Uh, and the first one that we published and then had on the podcast was Coast Guard Commander Marcus Kennedy, who was the, the commanding officer of uh, Coast Guard Air Station down in Texas. He's a, a Coast Guard aviator and a commander, commanding officer of a unit. And he was talking about the impact of that episode, the impact of that, the violence around the George Floyd death uh, on him and on his uh, Coast Guard. So that was a great conversation, very poignant. So here's Commander Marcus Kennedy, United States Coast Guard, from episode 165. Really what prompted me to write this article was because um, in the wake of a number of recent events, the Ahmaud Arbery situation in South Georgia, uh, the Breonna Taylor situation in Louisville, Kentucky, the Christian Cooper situation in New York. That was the situation where um, a uh, white female called the cops on a black man in Central Park and basically gave a false report about him attacking her. And then the killing of George Floyd. When those events came together, I found myself basically really in a lot of pain. And I actually was pulling up to work on a Friday and I just took a minute. I just took the minute to myself in my car to process all the things that were going on and to get myself to the point where I could walk in and be the commanding officer that the unit needed me to be, to lead the men and women here to smile, to basically put on a show, to put on a mask that says that I'm doing okay and that these things that are going on in society aren't bothering me. And I was finding that a little tough to do. And I ended up talking to a couple of friends and we just simply were talking about how nice it would have been if 
somebody were to check up on us, if one of our supervisors were to reach out and just simply ask, how are we doing? How nice it would be for that pain that we were feeling to be recognized. So that's what got me thinking about doing something. I ended up talking to a junior officer later that day, and he was feeling the same way. And he was actually a little bit more frustrated at the moment because at his workplace, the conversation about these events only focused on the rioting and the looting. It didn't focus on the actual injustice. And it was clear to him that his shipmates, the people that he worked with, they were concerned with storefronts and buildings being burned, cars being burned. They were more concerned about those things than the loss of life. And that's something that really frustrated him. And it just further got me thinking that the organization and what we can do individually there's just more that, that can be done. As you said, that's a poignant statement that he made in his article was very powerful. Uh, there, some critics would say that's not our lane. And as you hear in, in Marcus's sentiments, that this is the test of the utility of the independent forum. And, and I believe it was handled in a balanced fashion. And as always, if, if others are critical of, of how it's being teed up, then enter the forum. That's what the forum exists for. The other thing that we've been able to do with the podcast is have senior leaders talk about issues. And one of our earliest examples of that was episode 29, where we had the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs and a guy who I worked for when he was the George Washington, what we used to call a battle group commander in the late 90s, Admiral Mike Mullen. And Admiral Mullen and Admiral Natter wrote an article about where our priorities were when they were in positions of authority and where they should be in the wake of the collisions at sea during the summer of 2017, the collisions of Fitzgerald and McCain that killed 17 sailors. So let's listen to Admiral Mullen talking about that. Since 2005, and obviously I've been gone uh, uh, a long time, I, I tell people, I mean, I've really been out of the Navy since 2007. When I went to be the chairman, uh, I didn't I was a sailor. I had two ground wars, pretty significant effort against terrorists, and I wouldn't spend a lot of time at sea or on ships. So I, I really didn't look at that carefully. But I do know enough about, and even in my time as chairman, I do know enough about the whole uh, joint billet world that we've adjusted you know, fairly significantly from where we were originally to, no kidding, these are really, these are really joint billets. I mean, a joint billet is a billet where you actually get joint experience, not just designated, although I'm, I'm sure we still have some that are just designated uh, as well. So I think that has to be taken into consideration. So overall, and I'm, I'm just, this is instinctive more than it is uh, factual, that we're in much better shape for the joint billets that we need that are out there. Um, and there aren't as many as there used to be. And they are, they are much more realistic truly joint than a lot of them. So as we would, if we were to make this kind of change, I don't think it would be as drastic from the joint perspective uh, as it would have been 10 or 15 years ago. That doesn't mean 
that doesn't mean it won't be tough to manage. It will, and and um, and there will probably be some uh, some some flack and some damage associated with with prioritizing the going to sea first. But I, I come from the position as if you can't, if we can't go to sea, then yeah. we don't have much of a future. Right. That's the sine qua non. Yeah, yeah. It, it just is. It just is. Agreed. And I think our mistake was we thought we could do it all. And tragically, these 17 lives uh, have reminded us that we can't. One of the things I loved about the conversation with Admiral Mullen was that we did it in Beach Hall in front of an audience of our midshipmen summer interns, right? Oh, yeah, that was our first so cohort. The first group of summer interns. And yeah. so these midshipmen show up to Beach Hall and, hey, why don't you guys meet Admiral Mullen? And, uh, <laughs> How do you like us so far? <laughs> yeah, have a conversation. Yeah, that was really, that was fantastic. I forgot was, all about that. It was really fantastic, yep. And then uh, not long after that, we, uh, we had a conversation with the former 7th Fleet Commander, Vice Admiral Joe Alcoin. He was one of the other senior leaders we had on the show early on in 2018, uh, not long after that the comprehensive review came out. He had been the 7th Fleet Commander at the time of the Fitzgerald and McCain incidents. The comprehensive review made it sound like this problem was localized in 7th Fleet in the four deployed naval forces out in the Western Pacific. And Admiral Alcoin approached us about wanting to write something about that. And then he said, well, I don't know if I should. I had a number of conversations with him. It convinced him that proceedings was the place to have this conversation. He wrote uh, an article for us that we, we, we published called It's Not Just the FDNF. Um, and then we convinced him to get on the, to come on the show with us. And so he came on the show. He was, uh, I, I thought, incredibly sincere. He wasn't angry. He wasn't you know, it wasn't a vindictiveness that he was trying to, you know, push back against the Navy. He just wanted to have a conversation. And, and one of the things that struck me the most was when he said, as an organization, we have a very short memory. And he pointed towards uh, the Porter incident or collision. He pointed towards the Belial report of 2010 or 2011. Um, a number of these problems had been percolating in the Navy, particularly in the surface Navy, and had been left unattended. And he wanted to point out that, hey, we really need to dig, dig deeper because our tendency as an institution is to sort of paper over problems and say, yeah, we got this. It's, it's dealt with. So here's Admiral Alcoin in episode 31. You know, I love the Navy. Really do. And I really want the Navy to succeed. And I was disappointed uh, when, uh, you know, hey, what happened out there? Uh, you know? And so um, this is really uh, one of the only forums other than writing the paper. Uh, and talk about it. So I, I really do appreciate you guys you know, persuading me to do this. But uh, my biggest point in writing the paper was the resolve. Uh, whether or not we truly have a resolve to fix these shortfalls, you know, and not just the force, uh, force that risk that um, wasn't clearly put in the uh, comprehensive review. You know, if you read the comprehensive review, you know, you can come across uh, some of the articles uh, that were written that, uh, hey, we had some errant commanders out there, didn't know what was going on, and all was better. They're gone. Uh, that is completely false. Leadership was informed. Uh, we were turning off some things, but other things we, uh, we couldn't. It's at least good to see that now the manpower, it looks like that's programmed in there. 
And now that we have leadership pushing back on tasking like BMD uh, that I just mentioned there, you know, even though it's, you know, uh, late, you know, better late than never that uh, we're, we're getting that. But uh, none of that was in the CR. What it strikes me is kind of leadership uh, that uh, traits from a leadership from, that's from behind instead of uh, leadership from up front. You know, it would have been appreciated. Yes, Congressman, we do, we do have a shortfall. We should have been asking for more people. It's up to 7,500 now. And, um, you know, that, that, that is a major problem for our commanders at sea. Or, um, yes, as a Navy, we need to push back when the, you know, these uh, combatant commanders are uh, excessively tasking uh, our units. Or, you know what, this is a bigger issue than just seven fleet. Lake Champlain, it's unfortunate that I had a collision, but that was a manned, trained, and equipped ship all on the West Coast, had all the certifications. You won't see anywhere uh, that uh, it's a third fleet uh, ship in the CR or the press availability. So part of me uh, wanted to talk today because I, I feel like our service holds our people accountable. Uh, and I'm not disputing it. People needed to be fired uh, for what uh, happened uh, out there. But as, I also think that as an institution, uh, we tend to have memory lapses and that um, uh, we don't hold ourselves accountable for the risk that we're placing on our people. You know, instead, uh, we take a uh, little well, conversation. I'll take that uh, question for the record. We need to study that some more, and I'll get back to you in six months. I think we need to return, uh, regain our long-term memory and make sure we never lose sight of those sacrosanct kind of things that we need to uh, ensure that our people have are manned, trained, and equipped to do those missions. And some might think, uh, hey, Joey, you're just, that's water on the bridge. We got it. You know, we've got the sense of urgency. Well, you know, we had the sense of urgency when the border happened or, um, you know, the Belial report, uh, you know, and there's a list of recommendations. Or even the 2015 GAO report, that's sitting on somebody's desk. If those things had been followed through, that would have uh, helped a lot as far as preventing uh, some of these things from occurring. As he mentions in that soundbite, we had to, I don't know, convince him or just assure him that this was a productive, safe venue. And and so he actually thanks us at the end of that. And, And as you mentioned, he's completely sincere without any vindictive tone or whatever. And just, I, I've known him, as I mentioned during the show, since he was a lieutenant, he's a Tomcat Rio. And as we know in these things, there's some folks are thrown under the bus, as it were. And you could argue, as he puts it, that the assets that he was given were not ready to deploy. And that's not the fleet commander's responsibility. That's the resource provider's responsibility. His motivation was solely to make sure the comprehensive review was comprehensive. And I think that's a powerful use of the independent forum. We've also, in the last 200 episodes, had some service chiefs on the show. Earlier this fall, we had uh, the comment of the Coast Guard, Admiral Schultz, on talking about uh, his new strategy or the Coast Guard's new strategy to combat illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing around the world. And then uh, just earlier this month, in December 2020, we had uh, coming out of the Marine Corps, General David Berger, on talking about his November 2020 article uh, in Proceedings about how the Marine Corps would help fight submarines. That was a really interesting conversation, wide-ranging on a number of topics, not just um, ASW. So in this little segment, he talks about how we had a huge advantage. He couches it in the last 70 years that has eroded 
which is what we call the return to peer conflict. And this is what informs his strategy. So let's listen to General Berger. We didn't have competition. We didn't have an adversary that was close to us. We had so much overmatch in the, in the air realm, in, uh, on the surface, certainly uh, subsurface, the Marine Corps. Didn't, there was nobody close to us for 70 years. Now, you could compare the Cold War period to the first Cold War period to now, and I don't think that's a fair comparison, but capability-wise, there was nobody close. So there was no driver for the two of us to have to work together closely. Now, I think either money or an opponent, either one of them are pretty hard-driving factors. So part of it was that our primary focus was the Middle East. But I think also... I don't lose sight of the fact we had such a margin of advantage for so many decades. You can you can pretty much go where you want to go, do what you want to do, when you want to do it, when you have that, that kind of advantage. That that gap has closed. So it's forcing us to work together more naval and more joint. General Berger there was talking about uh, the need for naval integration. We had, we'd asked him about how things were going in terms of his relationship with the CNO, and how the, the, the Marine Corps was coming back to being a fleet Marine force. Hey, we haven't had to do this because we haven't had an adversary that required it. But now now we do with China and with a resurging Russia. And then uh, the last guest that we're going to talk about today was also earlier this month. We had uh, Secretary of the Navy Kenneth Braithwaite on the show. He asked to be on the show. He's a big fan of uh, Naval History Magazine, has been subscribing to it since the 1980s when he was a junior officer. Uh, and what a what a wonderful conversation to to have with the Secretary of the Navy about the importance of naval history, of studying your history, and of making naval history accessible to young people today. You think you may be writing stories about events of the past, but they're as relevant today and tomorrow as they were back then for the lessons that they teach all of us. So your service to our nation and our Navy and Marine Corps, I, I'm, I'm not uh, being facetious here. I mean this with all sincerity. The work that you're doing really matters, and uh, keep up the great job. And the work you're doing is very influential. I mean, I've been reading your magazine since I was a young lieutenant, both proceedings and naval history. It's the one subscription. I've had, you know, many subscriptions throughout the U.S. News and World Report and uh, the New Yorker and all kinds of different things where I, Foreign Affairs magazine, I will tell you that I have consistently received naval history. Uh, it's the one magazine that uh, not only... Do I find enjoyment? But I find a lot of uh, valid lessons that uh, we can apply to the future. So keep up the great work. SECNAF sentiments there are right on, and that's a call to action to the entire Naval Institute team. We are the shepherds of a very powerful, a very important, a very time-honored independent forum. And this is the thing that was instilled in you and I by our Svengali, our mentor, Fred Rainbow. It's what you are the guardian of day in and day out today. So first off, congratulations for 200 episodes of this podcast. I I never imagined that it would turn into something that has as much impact as it has had, both metrics-wise and anecdotally. Our CEO is often getting pinged by, you know, influencers and important people about, oh, I heard this on the podcast. And that's really heartening and encouraging to hear that. So with the construction of our conference center, which looks like it'll be complete late spring. We look to take this to the next level in terms of medium, so I don't want to say too much about that, but the podcast is going to do nothing but grow. So here's to 
the next 200 episodes and here's to getting back to normal where you and I are co-located and maybe even have our guests with us like the good old days when we were talking to Admiral Mullen. <laughs> so congratulations, buddy. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. And, and congratulations to our guests, too, because without them, we got nothing. So they write for proceedings. They write for naval history. They make history themselves. Uh, we have the good fortune of getting them on the show and having a conversation with them. And as you and I often joke, the show is so much better when they're doing most of the talking and we're doing less of the talking. Yeah, that was actually first pointed out by our CEOs. Like, could you guys talk less? <laughs> so we've tried to take that to heart. Yep. You know, we will always coach our guests. The show is best when we don't talk. Congrats on the 200th. Uh, congrats on closing out 2020. We're hoping to a, uh, a healthy and uh, happier 2021. And as you said, uh, getting the podcast back into Beach Hall and getting some of our guests in Beach Hall with us. Yeah, I'm excited about getting out of my attic where I've been stuck since <laughs> mid-March. Well, that'll do it for the 200th episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next year.